Genetics Podcast, Episode 28. Welcome to the 27th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. My name is Stefan and I'm part of the technical support and marketing team of Active Motif. Our special guest for this episode is Michelle Trenkmann, Senior Editor at Nature. And I'm happy to talk to you now. Thank you, Michelle, for joining me today. Please let me quickly introduce you to our audience. You studied biochemistry and molecular biology at the University of Leipzig. You then went on to do your PhD at the University of Zurich, and you completed this in 2013. You then moved to Dublin, Ireland to do a postdoc at the University College Dublin until 2017. And then you left academia, kind of, and joined Nature Communications in 2017, where you were associate editor. And then in 2019, you became senior editor at the beginning of this year. Um, oh, I made some... Uh, doubling in my notes uh, but you are since uh, the beginning of this year you are a senior editor at nature um, a question i like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then pursuing a career as editor at nature um, so was this the plan all along um, so thank you very much for inviting me on this podcast first of all and um Becoming an editor at Nature was not at all part of my career plan when I was still in high school and trying to decide what I wanted to do with my life. Um, so I always liked science when I was in school and I also liked reading. And actually, uh, when I was younger, I wanted to become a, a lawyer. I wanted to study law um, because I loved all of those John Grisham books. And then... Um, I did a work placement at 16 in a law firm and I realized maybe I don't like all of those big folders with lots and lots of paper and, you know, reading complicated cases all the time. And then I thought about what else could I do? What would I like? And I thought of biomedical research. And um, then I started to do some research. What would be the best subject to study to become a researcher? And so I settled on biochemistry and that's what I did. And then I did a PhD in biomedical research. And um, during my PhD, I had the opportunity to help my uh, professor with peer review sometimes. So I already, uh, you know, had some um, experience in reading papers and assessing papers. And I really enjoyed that. And so Already uh, from maybe halfway through my PhD on, I um, had this idea in the back of my mind of maybe becoming an editor sometime, um, but I didn't really do anything about it um, until a few years later um, when I was in a postdoc and I realized I actually don't enjoy doing those experiments anymore. I still loved reading about science and um, thinking about science, but the actual day-to-day -day job of doing experiments, of writing papers, of writing grant applications was just, I wasn't that keen on doing this for the rest of my life. And so I um, looked into how 
could I become an editor? I started talking to people who could help me maybe, and I started applying for editorial roles. And um, yeah, in 2017, I started working as an editor. Um, that's pretty much what happened. <laughs> so you're German and first you went to Dublin and then to London. Um, did you also plan this? Uh, and if yes or not, uh, do you ever want to go back to Germany? Um, I can't say that I ever had a very defined idea of what I wanted to do with my life in the long term. Um, so a lot of these things just kind of happened. So when I was uh, in Switzerland during my PhD, I was in the German-speaking part of Switzerland. And so I felt like it would be good for me to move somewhere where people speak English. And... Um, I knew someone in Dublin who said, hey, why don't you come to Dublin and work there? And so I applied for fellowships. Um, and in the end, I got um, a Government of Ireland postdoc fellowship to go there. And that's how it happened. And I loved, I loved living in Dublin. It's one of my favorite places in the world. But... Um, There are no science editor jobs in Dublin, and that's why I moved to London. Yeah. Uh, um, so oh, and your question about whether I would go back to Germany. Um, I've been thinking about this, um, but it's still just more or less a thought in my head. We have an office in Berlin, so uh, there is a possibility. Yeah. yeah. So you're... you're just lined out uh, how you became or how your path was going to nature and nature communications did you also do some special training before you applied for your first job in this editorial business were there any training courses maybe in grad school that you could attend no there there is no formal training for being an editor for a science journal it's um i think the group of professional editors in science is very small worldwide and so there is no formal training you learn on the job and it's yeah. a very steep learning curve um, but it's also really exciting coming more to your job how does a day look like is it just that you sit in front of your computer read emails read papers and then you go home after <laughs> after that or um, how does your look, job look like um, so a regular day, yes, would be mostly uh, um, reading emails, responding to emails, reading papers, um, discussing papers with my colleagues. And when I say discussing, most of the time this does not happen in person, but um, on our online manuscript system where we, you know, send each other notes and comments about papers. Um, and so that is the majority of the work. Um, finding reviewers for papers that need reviewers or making decisions after review. So you read the reports and then decide whether you want to invite a revision or not. That's the main part of the job. Um, but then we also have meetings, for example, about journal internal you know, processes um, or just keeping each other up to date on what's happening. Um, otherwise, you just live in your own bubble of the respective area that you handle. Um, but yeah, I mean, most 
most of the time I am in the office and stare at the screen. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the same for me. <laughs> um, so you, you really need to be organized and not uh, losing overview over all these um, different uh, yeah, discussions and dis discussion mm -hmm. uh, parts. So that's maybe one I of mean, the... I, I, I very much depend on my Outlook calendar to remind me of meetings. Um, and uh, in terms of uh, manuscripts, not to lose track, our manuscript system is has basically uh, different folders and you constantly are on the main window where you look at the different folders. So, you know, I have so-and-so new, many new submissions that I have to read and I have so-and-so many papers that are currently under review and maybe I should check whether any reviews are late. And so there are basically yeah. constant reminders of, what you what you have to do yeah that's uh, that's probably uh, very good to, to have um, mm -hmm. so we, we already discussed before the interview about my next question because uh, at least in my view and this uh, obviously was wrong <laughs> you progressed very quickly to become senior editor at nature but uh, yeah you started at nature communications and then you moved on to to to, to nature um, so you already gave me some insights into this uh, but maybe you can share this again um, how this came Mm -hmm. um, so when within nature research, when we start as editors, the majority come from academia. And as I mentioned, there is no formal training. So the only way of being trained as an editor to learn on the job. And when you when you first join, you go through a, about a six month training phase where you read manuscripts, you send them for review, but you basically have someone, your, the, the editor who trains you check every single decision that you make. You, you have to discuss every paper. You have to justify why you want to send a paper for review or not. And um, you have to make suggestions of who might be uh, um, suitable reviewers for a paper. And then the training editor tells you whether you're completely off with your assessment or whether you're on point. And this is how you learn to be an editor. And then after... After a while, if you know if you're doing well, then your training editor says, "Okay, you can start making some decisions um, in, on your own, and you know how to find the right reviewer." So I don't have to check that anymore. And so you you become relatively independent, but of course, um, the majority of papers are and decisions are still discussed in the team, and. Um, Again, in nature research, um, usually we can become senior editor after about two years. And um, it's a formalized process where you have to um, write a document and present evidence that you have done, um, have achieved certain milestones for an editor, say, handle complicated files. You have maybe co-organized a conference. You have taught masterclasses. Um, you have gone to conferences, you have visited institutes and talked to people and just presented that you are a fully rounded editor who can work independently and can deal with difficult situations. And so um, I became a senior editor after about two years. And um, my move to nature was not a promotion, even though it may look like it from the outside, but just a lateral move. My role is the same. My title is the same. So as an editor, you, I mean, 
I don't th say that we have the same job, but I'm looking for people from the field um, that I can interview for the podcast and you look for people from the field that can do reviews, for, that can be a reviewer. So you need to have a really good overview over your field of expertise, right? I mean, uh, how do you make sure you, <laughs> you get all those people? Because I sometimes stumble upon people that I didn't know even, that I didn't even know mm -hmm. before. But uh, in this case, you, you can't like uh, act like that because you really have to know the people, right? Yeah, so it does help um, to have more experience. So I find it a lot easier now to, you know, I read a paper and I already have a few names in my head of people who I think could be good reviewers for the paper. Um, but what often helps is um, when authors give us some suggested reviewer names, because even if we don't use these people in particular, they help us to find other people because they collaborate, they publish with other people. Um, I also like to look at the list of references in a paper. So what is a, what is a similar paper and who has published and that has published that paper? Um, but yes, you need to find someone who has a similar interest and who has the right technical expertise. And what really helps is always a good website. Um, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that makes it a lot easier, yeah. And, you know, just going to conferences, talking to people, seeing people present work. Um, so, yeah, over, over the years, um, that gets a bit easier. But I still sometimes have papers where I just really struggle to find the right person because you have to also take conflicts of interest into account um yeah yeah so so far besides the encode encode project and we will come to that in a minute uh, what were maybe the most or what was the most exciting story that you read in the last couple of years um I mean, that's really hard to say, right? Um, I think one of my favorite papers in the last two years was um, a paper that uh, came out in Nature Genetics two years ago in the summer, where um, Sekar Kafirisan's group showed that um, you can calculate uh, polygenic risk scores that can um, define or can classify individuals at risk of certain diseases with, um, you know, quite good um, predictive or quite good performance. And um, I think that's one of those landmark papers. Um, and yeah, I think that was a, a, a wonderful paper. Um, and then I might not be entirely unbiased, but I think also the, the Nomad papers that we published in Nature this year in, in May are pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. So let's uh, look at the publication process from your side. I mean, we, uh, we will come to ENCODE later. I already teased this, but um, how does it start when, when somebody wants to publish a paper? And I mean, I think you receive an email probably. And already the right format formatted paper mm -hmm. inside of this, and uh... Uh, no, that's actually not at oh. all how it works. <laughs> um, so we have a, a submission system, an electronic oh. submission system. So um, we um, authors submit their papers usually through that system, and then it comes into a general inbox where then our team managers assign the paper depending on what it's about, and um, to 
hopefully correct editor. And then it comes into my inbox also on this manuscript um, tracking system. And then I have to read it. I write some notes. I look at a bit, you know, do some literature search and um, maybe discuss it with some other relevant editors. So if it's about evolutionary genetics, I might talk to our evolution editor. If it's about immunogenetics, I might talk to our immunology editor. And then based on what we've discussed and what already is known in the literature, um, we'll decide to send it for review or not. And if we think it's, you know, a very good paper, but maybe not, necessarily at nature level, then we might recommend one of the other nature family journals or even talk to the editors at the other journal and say, here, we have this paper. Would you be interested in sending this for review? Um, it depends on whether authors allow us to talk to other journals or not. Um, yeah, and then if we decide to send it for review, then that's my next job. Find the right reviewers, make sure that I cover all of the different expertises that are needed. So some papers, you can get away with two reviewers only, but for some papers, you may need three, four, or even five, depending on how many different technologies are maybe used. Um, so, yeah, so it can vary the number of reviewers. And then once the reviewers are in, you read the reports, you take all of the different points of view into, into account, uh, again, discuss with a relevant other editor and see uh, whether you want to invite a revised manuscript or not. And yeah, if you invite a revised manuscript, then you wait for the revision to come back in, and then usually you, you return it to the same reviewers and, okay. mm -hmm. you know, then it continues from there. And then you will, if everything is fine and set for publication, um, you then do the layout and everything, and and maybe um, the the f yeah the figures are done by the um, the people that uh, submit the manuscript. But sometimes you have like special um, special uh, yeah illustrations of of the the papers um, for websites or something. Um, Do you do this regularly or I think I've seen that. I don't know if I've seen this on, on nature, but maybe that's just for the, the cover of the, of the current issue. Um, so do you mean like a graphical abstract or? Yeah. Okay. So we, we don't do graphical abstracts in, in the nature family journals. Um, so yes. So, With regards to formatting, we sort that out um, or we ask the authors to apply, um, com comply with our formatting and style okay. requirements at the point when we accept the paper. So in, for initial assessment, we don't need the paper to be in a specific format. Um, and at Nature, we have um, art editors who help with the figures. Um, It depends a little bit on the journal. So at Nature Communications, for example, we didn't, when I was there, we didn't have art editors. So whatever authors submitted to us would be in the exact same shape and form in the published paper. Um, at Nature, the art editors, they also help with um, the figures and, and maybe make suggestions of, you know, how to present it better. Um, 
we also have copy editors at Nature, so they help with um, bringing the writing into the correct style, uh, into a consistent style across the Nature papers. Um, but yeah, all of this actually happens after I've accepted the paper. So in general, when I click the accept button, I don't see the paper again okay. unless, unless there are any uh, issues with it. Um, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's so. Then you have to look for yourself uh, when it's actually in the in the journal. Then, finally. well, we 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 get a list of papers okay. that are going to be published, so we get um, we are informed when our papers will go in online and then also into the print issue. So I, I contacted you initially because I wanted to make an episode about the third phase of the Encode project, which is an important part of the epigenetics community community and you were like helping pushing uh, the encode papers over the finish line so the encode project already started in 2003 could you maybe give us a short summary what the encode is and what its goals are and were um so in 2001 the uh, first draft of the human genome was published, if you remember. So the 20-year anniversary <laughs> is coming up, actually. Um, and so after the human, after we've learned about the sequence of the genome, um, I suppose the next step was to learn how is it interpreted. Um, so I should say that I obviously wasn't there in 2003 when ENCODE started. Um, I had just started university. Um, so I, you know, I can only talk about what I have read uh, myself. And um, so it started in 2003 and with the goal of annotating all of the functional elements in the human genome. So genes, um, control regions that control gene expression and transcript isoforms. And so in the first phase of ENCODE, um, because we should remember that at the time, Uh, microarray technology was mostly used. Um, the, the consortium focused on 1% of the human genome for annotation. And so the first uh, phase was published in 2007, where those initial results of this um, pilot phase of ENCODE were published. And then in the, in the second phase in 2012, um, this was extended to a genome-wide survey and then also based on next generation sequencing technologies. Um, there was also the mouse encode project in the meantime. So, and um, the um, model organisms fly and um, C. elegans were also um, surveyed in encode style uh, experiments. Um, so, yeah. And so over the years, I suppose, The, uh, the type of essays were expanded, the number of essays were expanded, the types of cells and tissues were expanded. Um, and yeah, now we're in 2020 and have published the third phase of ENCODE. Um, yeah, what makes it so special and important for the community? Because, um, I mean, obviously it's... Uh Not all uh, model organisms are included, but I guess we are getting there. Um, but what is the impact on the community? Well, it's obviously an incredibly valuable resource. So um, 
all of the data are available without any restrictions and um, the uh, there is a big emphasis on um, data standards so everything is run according to the same data processing pipelines and a lot of um, the experiments have been performed in replicates so it's all about data standards about high quality data and um, then of course it's the data resource itself um, anyone can use it and get all of this interesting and important information about any uh, region of the genome that they might be interested out of the out of the resource and um, another big um, another big focus of the encode project is the development of tools so they have not just generated data they've also developed tools that others can be can use in combination with encode data with their own data to learn more about whatever research question they have and this is also a good like starting point for researchers when they like start with a new method in their lab trying to like reproduce encode data and then move on to their own questions right so um, yeah, you took over the publication process, as we already mentioned, uh, of now of the third phase, but it was already between third and home base when you, <laughs> when you stepped mm -hmm. in the game. Um, but uh, maybe can you give us a little insight on when you at Nature started to talk to the scientists at Encode about publishing the, of the third phase of the project? Because I saw that one of the papers was already submitted in 2017, and this is now already three years ago. So this is probably a a longer time frame that we are talking about now. Mm -hmm. So um, Nature also published the first phase and the second phase of ENCODE. So I suppose there was already a strong historical relationship. And um, as I said, I w as you know, I wasn't there when all of these initial <laughs> talks happened. Um, so I can't say for sure what happened in 2015 or 2016. But I would suspect that the previous editor, Oli Bakal, um, has had many meetings and many phone calls with the consortium already beforehand um, to discuss um, how many papers there might be, um, what kind of promotion we could do at Nature. I don't know whether you have seen our um, immersive website and the collection. So these things, you know, they take a lot of work. They um, require the input of many different teams. And so um, a lot of the time we have to discuss these things before such big projects are even submitted, just so that everyone is on the same page and knows what people expect um, from each other. And so, um, yeah, I would, I would guess that... Um, the previous editor had spoken with the consortium already in 2015-2016 about the the package and the submission um, and then later the publication. And yes, sometimes um, these papers and these projects can take a long time. And so there were some papers that were submitted in 2017, but, you know, revisions can take a long time. Um, and What I've also learned in those few months that I was involved in this is that there are a lot of people involved and just getting the feedback from everyone and maybe at every single stage just takes longer than 
you know, if you just have two or three people who are involved in a certain project. So when you started um, your job at, at Nature uh, this year, I suppose that the date of publication was already fixed, right? Or was there some some uh, flexibility in there? No, we had not we had not set that publication date yet because there were still um, there were still a few papers that had to be accepted. Uh, actually, when I started, there were still papers that were still in review in okay. first round of review, um, and so part of my job was to bring all of these papers um, towards acceptance and then also to in in communication with the consortium with our production team um, with our editor and with our chief editor um, set a date and then also talk with the art team and with the people from marketing about all of these extra Uh, this extra content that we uh, created and kind of coordinate everything. So um, at some point we did set this as a hard date, the, 31, the, um, the 30th of July issue. And then there, there was a bit of a rush with some, you know, with getting everything done on time, having all of the papers ready on time, because what we have to consider is that these papers are a lot bigger than what we normally publish. And so this is also a bigger strain on our production team. So we had to make sure that our production and our copy editors and the art editors can handle all of this at the same time. So, um, yeah, so that was A, part, a, a big part of my job uh, when I joined Nature in, in spring to coordinate all of this and make sure that um, everything is ready on time. So can you maybe just uh, yeah, say roughly when the decision of, yes, we want to have this date now was, was made? Mm -hmm. um, I think it may have been in May. I don't remember. Okay. So I think we decided in May, May, June, this is going to be the date. And now we have to get going with all of the extra content. It was not just that papers were published in Nature, obviously, but you also have uh, papers in different other journals of your uh, family. Um, so were you also involved in managing and deciding which paper goes where? And then, uh, yeah, like putting it all together is a big, nice package and how many papers you have uh, in nature and how many were in, in other journals? Well, I mean, if you have a big project like this and have a large number of papers, um, we obviously can't publish them all in nature. And so the decision wh which paper goes where was made a long time before I, I joined nature. Um, so what happens a lot of the time is that a paper is submitted and, um, you know, the editors read it and then say, oh, this isn't for nature, but this might be a good fit for nature communications. And then, you know, the editor at nature can talk to the editor at nature communications and say, would you take this? This is part of the ENCODE project. And so we need to coordinate publication down the line. And then nature communicate if the authors transfer if they it's always the, the choice of the authors there is no obligation um, but if they choose to transfer then nature communications would send the paper for review and um, so we've had multiple we've had a few papers that were basically ready 
before this year and it were just held mm -hmm. um, for publication together with the package. Um, so I was not involved um, in handling the papers at Nature Communications. The, those were other colleagues of mine who handled those papers. But yes, now towards the end um, of uh, towards organizing the publication, I I communicated with all of the other journals saying, hey, this is the publication date. Um, so make sure that you publish it on the same date. And um, yeah, just talking to them about all of the various um, processes that go on behind the scenes. Yeah, earlier in, the, earlier in this interview, we talked about the publication process of a normal paper. Um, and I think the general publication process of these ENCODE papers were like on the science side and the review side the same. Um, so I think the, the, the challenging, the, the most challenging part is just the organization stuff, right? So you have to really coordinate everything that everything is ready, that the data is shared and uploaded to the right resources. Um, to be published then when it's uh, the time to publish it. Yeah, that's right. Um, so with, um, with co-published co or co-submitted papers, um, we sometimes like to have overlapping reviewers, but you obviously can't expect a single reviewer to um, review six or eight papers. So um, that wasn't possible here. But, um, you know, there were maybe a few reviewers who reviewed two papers or three papers just to make sure that there is some consistency also in the decision making but apart from that the um, the editorial process is pretty much the same it's just that you yeah you maybe have to think a bit more about being consistent in the decisions and um, if there are two very similar papers to make sure that you also that your editorial decision is consistent between those two papers, for example. Yeah, so thank you, Michelle, for giving us insight into uh, the ENCODE publication process and for being part of this show. Pleasure, thank you. This was the 27th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I want to give a shout out to Dominic and Manuel, who gave us great feedback on Twitter. Thank you for your kind words. Please rate, review and subscribe our podcast so you never miss an episode. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. We will read all your reviews and comments and give you a shout out on a future episode like it just did. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at podcast.activemotif.com. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog, Motivations, at activemotif.com slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.